Morning, everybody. Everybody got quiet. It's always my sign to start church. I actually wrote down announcements today, so I wouldn't forget any of them. Uh, unlike me. But I wanted to talk about um, the several, several events coming up. And this is kind of like, mark your calendar. Uh, so if you have a calendar on your phone, feel free to get your phone out. I'm going to tell you several dates um, that are upcoming so you can make sure to put them down. First, uh, the Abide Women's Conference. Uh, so this is a, a big conference at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary that uh, Pam has to set up for, she told me. So um, make sure you pre-register so that she knows exactly how many chairs to put out. Uh, but the Abide Women's Conference is a big event each year uh, and is you know meant to be just a really, really encouraging, really equipping time. Um, Pam, did you did you look up who the speaker was? Uh, the And who is that, Rachel? Okay, cool. So if you want to sign up for that, you can do it online. Uh, again, it's called Abide. Uh, so it's the Abide Women's Conference, and it's February 3rd and 4th. Some other dates have in your calendar. Um, that same evening, February 4th, uh, we're going to do a disaster relief training for the Greater New Orleans area. So if you have ever wanted to uh, wield a chainsaw like a boss, um, or wanted to meaningfully respond, and Jonathan's like, yep, sign me up. Uh, wanted to meaningfully respond in the midst of disaster, uh, then you are welcome to sign up for uh, the disaster relief training. It's going to be out in Metairie Advantage Church. If you need a ride, just let me know, and I can provide some rides out there. Um, but that, again, is on February 4th. I will say, I know we train people on the field. It is always way better for everyone who's planning to know who's trained and where they're at before a hurricane actually hits. So um, if you want to take part in disaster recovery, I would strongly urge you to take part in, um, in the disaster relief training. And I also want to say welcome back to our college students. Uh, let's, let's pray for them as uh, the semester starts here this week. Um, another thing to have on your calendar, and this is the last, last thing I'm mentioning, and I know this is far out, but I want it to be on people's radar on the calendar because it affects this gathering right here. So the Southern Baptist Convention is on June 13th and 14th. Okay, what does this mean for us as a church? We are the closest Baptist Church to the Southern Baptist Convention because they're in the convention hall and the hotels here. Um, I am anticipating a lot of people wanting to take part in our gathering, and so I have been talking with um, another pastor here in the city. His name is Jay Atkins. He's at FBC West Wego, and we are planning a joint service inside the convention center um, because I do not want to get into a scenario where we've got a couple hundred people trying to crowd into this space or spilling out on the street, all that. Um, so we are going to switch venues for one week only um, to help accommodate, because uh, they are early estimates for number of people coming into New Orleans for the SBC is uh, 15,000 people. Yeah, I have not yet heard the estimates for how many people will actually make it back out of New Orleans after the convention, <laughs> but coming in is 15,000. Um, 
A couple other things, these are more normal things for us to announce. Uh, I do want to make sure you all know about small groups on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday night. It's at 6 o'clock. Tuesday night's at my place. If you want to join in that one, just come talk to me. Uh, Wednesday night is here at the church, and you're welcome to show up. Uh, so 6 o'clock, Wednesday night, here at the church, Tuesday at my place. Um, and then also we are on for Shower Friday this week. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shower Fridays, we open up our doors and we serve a meal, restaurant style. Um, we have clothes and showers available for folks who need that, haircuts. Uh, if you are in need of any of these things, or if you want to take part in any way, volunteering, uh, donating clothes, whatever, uh, in whatever way you want to take part, just come talk to me or to Phil um, about that and we can, we can get you uh, serving in a meaningful capacity. Um, two other things to mention, and then I'm going to stop talking. Uh, Inward Ministries and the Baptist Friendship House. Uh, these are two ministries that we've been connected to for a long time that I am greatly encouraging just further cooperation on. Uh, the Baptist Friendship House does something very similar to Shower Fridays every Tuesday, Thursday. Um, and then the uh, Inward Ministries meets here uh, once a month right now, I believe, on late, late on Wednesday nights. And that is a ministry that um, ministers to uh, dancers, anyone involved with the clubs on Bourbon Street, uh, to seek to bring the love of Christ there. It's an all-female ministry, gentlemen, so don't get excited. Uh, don't sign up for this one. Uh, this is all-female because they go backstage at the clubs and things like that and try to minister and pray with uh, people involved there. If you have any questions, comments, cries about rage, you can talk to me afterward. Um, I know we have some prayer requests. Did I miss any announcements? Okay. Um, some prayer requests. Phil stepped out to bring Darren to the hospital. I'm not quite sure what's going on there, but let's pray for Darren this morning um, as he's not feeling well enough to want to go into the ER. Uh, and then we're also praying for John, who had surgery on both Tuesday and Thursday, right? Okay. Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday. But it's we were in the ER yesterday. Oh, wow. Okay. Very complications. Okay, so we'll definitely pray for him in that. Any updates about Chris? Not yet, buddy. I'm really hoping we'll have some soon. Um, so we we'll definitely pray for him as well. All right, let me pray. For, go ahead. Mama Rose, she was having some body aches and not feeling well at all this morning. Okay. Do we think it's related to anything? Okay. Sounds good. Well, please join me in prayer. Father God, Lord, we bring these things to you in prayer because you are small enough, miraculously somehow, to care about each and every person and thing that's going on, God, but also big enough that you're actually able to move heaven and earth to do something about it. God, so we do pray for Darren and for Mama Rose, Lord, for John, um, and for others, for Chris, Lord, uh, for others that are in some sort of uh, need this morning, God. We pray that knowing that you are all-sufficient, God, to meet every need that we bring to you, we just ask you to be with these folks when we cannot, Lord, and to provide for them, to heal them, Lord, um, as only you're able God, I pray to you uh, for our gathering this morning, Lord, that you would be in and through this place. Uh, Lord, we know that you are omnipresent and always with us, God, but we also know that 
in spirit and truth, God, you allow us to worship. Uh, Lord, so we pray for your spirit this morning just to saturate our hearts, Lord, to change hearts and minds, Lord, to allow us to forgive each other. Lord, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. We also pray as Christ taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy second Sunday in the season of Epiphany. We are continuing our celebration and examination of the light of God coming into the world in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And our gospel reading this morning kind of picks up where we left off last week um, after Jesus' baptism. And we see the reactions to the people around Jesus of this, this moment of theophany where the Holy Spirit has come down and God has spoken and Jesus has been revealed for who and what he is. And John begins proclaiming, I, I didn't know, I didn't understand, but this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one, the anointed one of God, the one we've been waiting for. And he tells his own disciples who have been following him, stop following me, go follow him. He is the one who has the light, the life, the healing that we need. And they, they obey, they respond to that call, and they follow after. And this is always how God comes to us. God always comes to us revealing himself to us and inviting us to follow, inviting us to join in in what he's doing, inviting us to be a part. And as we see in our, our first reading from Isaiah, it's one of the many prophecies of God's Messiah and what his anointed one would look like. That call is, is for all people. It's not just for, for one group or one tribe, but it is for all people. And I love the way it says it. He it says it's, it's too... It's too light a thing for you just to save this entire nation and rescue this entire people. But I have sent you to the whole world to be a light to the nations for salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's very good news for us because we are the heathen that Isaiah said to speak peace to. Right? We are the Gentiles, the strangers, the foreigners who were reached out to and invited in. And in this season of Epiphany, is sort of two prongs all the way through it, looking at who Jesus is and remembering that we are all, the whole world, called to be a part of the hope that he represents. And that's what we'll be looking at sort of in two prongs going through this season of Epiphany. And our, our readings and response times, we'll be looking at who Jesus is seeing him for who he is, and hearing his voice and his call. And in our sermon series, we'll be talking about what it means to respond to that call, what it looks like to follow him, to try to be like Christ. And that's our challenge for this whole series. And my prayer for us today, that as we, as we hear the word, as we respond in prayer, as we sing the songs, 
that have been sung for years and years, that have been sung around the world, some older, some newer, of people pouring out their faith and proclaiming the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. And as we deep dive into the scripture in our sermon, that we will see Jesus for who he is, that we will hear his call on our lives, and that we too will follow his way when we hear his call. So Marlena, would you please read our first reading for us this morning? Um, Isaiah 49, 1 to 7. Um, listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you people from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Mr. Jackson. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm reading from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he from whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself do not know him. I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself do not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He of whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Amen. <coughs> Please pray with us. Light of the nations, hope of all the world, you have sent forth your word to the ends of the earth. 
You have wrapped yourself in flesh to live and love among us. You have made your breath our very being, always, always calling us closer, always, always calling us home. But our attention is turned again and again by our fears, by our doubts, by our pride, by our need. Our eyes are closed to your presence among us, our feet slow to follow your way. Forgive us, O Lord, help us to heed your call, that we too may come and see the Anointed One, that we too may follow where he leads. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. The Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcome, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord, whose salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. Is that there? Okay. <laughs> I'll read the closing prayer. Holy God, you gather the whole universe into your radiant presence and continually reveal your Son as our Savior. Bring healing to all wounds, make whole all that is broken, speak truth to all illusion, and shed light in every darkness, that all creation will see your glory and know your Christ. Amen. Church. Morning. If you would, as able, stand with me and join in worship.
just um, will, Lord God, to spend uh, these treasures um, of the, your word, God. Um, give us that um, that giving that we need, Lord God. You're giving your son. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to this earth. The only one who could save us, the only one who is able to live a perfect life and pay the price for all sin. The one who is able to come back and restore all things that are broken. God, we pray that you would send your spirit here this day, that you would dwell in our hearts and through the words of the sermon this morning. We pray that you'd be with us in your name. Again, please go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 50. It's the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, we are going to get pretty specific today in the text. If you want one, you can raise your hand, and I'm fairly certain someone's going to bring one to you. 90%. Um, we are towards the beginning of a series this morning. On, and I, I'll explain myself what I, I mean by this, but on being Christian. What is it exactly that makes us Christians? I would argue it's more than just belief. Faith without works is dead, we read, so there are things we do as well which make us Christian. I grew up with Christian practice being defined mostly in the negative. For the most part, I, I you know, don't do this, don't do that, and they were good things to avoid. I, I don't disagree. I wish I had not spent three years of my life trying to quit smoking. That would have been great. Um, but a few years ago, um, after already, I had already started in ministry, I read Jesus' words in Matthew 23, and honestly, these words began to haunt me uh, and convict me, whatever you want to say. These, these are words upon which this sermon series is founded. Matthew 23 reads this, The greatest among you shall be your servant, says Jesus speaking. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, which means actors, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Skipping to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I don't want to be a blind guide, y'all. <laughs> I don't want to need God to humble me. I prayed one time and one time only that God would teach me humility, and he was uh, swift and thorough in his teaching. I would much rather humble myself. And I want to share the gospel across the sea, I do, but I want it to be a true gospel which will set people free. And I'll keep tithing, but out of joy, not out of duty. And I'll build my life around the weightier matters. Last week we talked about baptism, specifically Jesus' baptism, which inaugurated the practice and the faith. And I don't know of any tradition within Christianity that doesn't follow that practice in some form. It is the gospel message proclaimed through action. 
At the heart of baptism is what we're going to be talking more about this morning. Baptism at its core is about adoption, and then what we're discussing today, more specifically, forgiveness. <clears throat> forgiveness. Jesus' baptism shows us that. Jesus entered the water that day and joined in our death and in our curse in order to redeem it and forgive us, to raise us again to life as sons and daughters of God. And whenever you are tempted toward guilt or toward despair, that God hates you or has forsaken you, you are able to remember your baptism and to remind yourself that you were adopted by God and that you were forgiven your sins. The forgiveness and adoption of God are so absolute that even though baptism is one of our core rituals as Christians, we, we are meant to practice it only once. <clears throat> baptism is about God forgiving us. But as we pray every week here, we aren't just meant to be forgiven as Christians. We are also meant to be about forgiving those who trespass against us. So if we are meant to be Christians, we need to know what forgiveness really is and how to practice it day by day. So go with me, Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is Jacob, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God and of your father Joseph wept when they spoke this to him his brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but Joseph said to them do not fear for am I in the place of God as for you you meant evil against me God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray this morning, as I always do, Lord, just that you would show us your truth in your words today, God. Because we know your truth will set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. I remember the moment I realized forgiveness was something which defines Christians and Christianity as a whole. Partially because I was wildly uncomfortable in this moment. I was uh, taking classes away from my seminary in Boston. There's a program where divinity students in Boston trade students. So I was very much so not at a Christian school. I was in a very diverse room. I was seated next to a Tibetan monk in full garb. Um, and then a woman that I later became very close friends with who pastored an atheistic church and several um, Muslims nearby. I was in a class on forgiveness in literature. And the professor opened the class with these words. And I remember this because I was so shocked by it. He opened the class by saying, forgiveness is a distinctively Christian concept. I had no idea up until that point that forgiveness was distinct to Christianity. In fact, I looked around to see if anybody was offended by his statement, <laughs> but everyone was just nodding their heads. Apparently this is common knowledge, uh, and I was just ignorant because this is something in which I had always believed, right? I had always believed in forgiveness. 
Those in the room who followed other faiths did not believe in forgiveness. I started asking my classmates what they what they did when they made mistakes or when other people caused suffering to them, and most of the answers surrounded concepts either of justice or of atonement. If you do something wrong, they are allowed to seek if you, if you do something wrong against someone, that person is allowed to seek recompense, to seek justice, or you are able to take that initiative to begin doing something to make some sort of atonement. Others in the room saw suffering as something to be denied and transcended. Christians are the only ones who teach confession and forgiveness. That you, when you sin, might make your relationship to God right again by confessing and repenting, or in other words, telling the truth about what you've done and turning away from your sin. So, of course, forgiving other people is also a uniquely Christian practice. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And my main point for today is this. Christians, at our core, Christians at their core are meant to be people who are forgiven and therefore forgive. To be clear, Christians believe in atonement, but for us, atonement is singular. We talk about the atonement meaning everything needed for us to be forgiven and to forgive others was accomplished in Christ's death on the cross. Whatever suffering we needed to go through in order for wrongs to be made right, Jesus went through in our behalf. He was the atonement, which allows us to forgive others without asking anything of them. We're able to tell the truth and in doing so to forgive. Christians also believe in justice, to be clear, but a justice arising from and intermingled with forgiveness. And we're going to talk more about that in a sermon series later on in this year. I have already hinted at this a few times. I want to say it outright. There can be no forgiveness without the telling of truth. You can try, but you'll fail. Unless you see clearly the state, the truth, whatever suffering you're dealing with, you'll never land in a place of forgiveness. You'll end up short in places like anger or bitterness or guilt or blame, never actual forgiveness. Truth-telling and forgiveness are inextricably bound. As with salvation and adoption, in the first place, you cannot be forgiven unless you admit that you are not righteous already. You speak the truth, and then there can be forgiveness. In searching for a passage for this sermon, I thought about going all the way back to where forgiveness begins, east of Eden, um, when the Lord left paradise for the first time to come out to his children while they were still on the road and wrapped robes around them and welcomed them back into his family before they had really done anything to deserve it. I decided instead to focus in on this passage, on Joseph, because even though forgiveness is enacted before this point, this is the first point that anyone actually tries to put forgiveness into words. And I want us to learn from Jacob and what he says here. If you don't know this story, uh, we're coming in at the end of it. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of how much their father loved him. And despise them. And from slavery, Joseph goes into prison. Then, miraculously, he ascends to be the second most powerful man in what was probably the most powerful kingdom of his day. All of this while his brothers face hardship because they were farmers. And there's a famine in the land. They, they lose everything, his brothers do. And so they go to Egypt, to the one place that they hear where they can find help. And when they arrive, the only person in the world who is able to help them 
is the brother they sold into slavery. If Joseph were to choose justice or atonement in this moment, that justice would be poetic justice. <laughs> uh, the brothers point this out in truth. They, in verse 15 and 18, if you're looking at that, they, they state the truth of exactly what justice looks like in this scenario. They say, it may be that Joseph hates us and wants to pay us back for what we've done to him. Then they say, we are your servants now, Joseph, your slaves. And they bow to him. Poetic justice. The same evil that they had intended for him falls back on them. But Joseph decides instead to listen to the words of his father, Jacob, son of the promise, and the first man I know of ever to try to put forgiveness into words. Jacob's message comes in verse 17, and I, I want you to look at it. If you have your Bibles open, it's, there you go. Thanks, Lewis. It's up on the screen. In verse 17, Jacob tells the truth of what happened. He says, your brothers have done evil against you, and they have sinned. But then Jacob suggests something unheard of, and the idea was born out of a father's love for his sons. He says, please. And the next word is translated in English as forgive because we have a word. We have a concept for what he's asking. But this is, to my knowledge, the first time the idea of forgiveness has been put into words. So Jacob uses whatever word is closest to what he's trying to say. The word basically means to pick up or to carry. His message to Joseph is, please, will you pick up their evil? Will you take up their sin and carry it with you? Which gives us a picture, a beautiful picture, is it not? A picture of what forgiveness looks like. Sin produces suffering in the world. Suffering may not always be something you can see because it's inside of people. Like blood, it spills out only during the injury, and even then it changes color on exposure to the air, so you never see a person suffering, suffering for what it is until someone lets you in to look very close. But suffering is something you can feel. It has a weight to it. It's heavy to carry. Suffering's a lot like power in this way. It can't be hidden. It does not degrade with time. It has to be born. Someone or something has to carry it. Injustice is where someone who had no part in the sin bears the suffering of it. Justice, biblical justice, again, is the topic of the next sermon series, so we'll give right now a very over-simple definition, but justice is when the person who produced the suffering is made to bear the suffering, or at least part of it. Forgiveness is when the person sinned against of his own will, by his own choice, picks up and carries that suffering and that sin, so no one else has to bear it. You can see Joseph suffering actively in the passage. He's weeping as he forgives his brothers, but he has suffered for years before this moment for their sin. And I want you to notice that forgiveness has the power to change even the past, because again, forgiveness is participating in something God has done once for all, so like God, forgiveness transcends time. In this moment of forgiveness, Joseph and the Lord together change the decades of Joseph's suffering injustice, making it beautiful, making it, forging it into forgiveness instead. Joseph could have chosen to hand that suffering back to his brothers in this moment. He had the power to place the yoke of slavery on their heads instead and make them carry it. But he decides 
to grant the request of his father, Jacob. He chooses forgiveness. Joseph chooses to pick up the suffering they created in the world and to carry it so they don't have to. And again, there is nothing at all wrong with justice. Justice is good and beautiful, and we're going to talk far more about the relationship between justice and forgiveness and how the two might exist at the same time. But for now, in this sermon, I want you to see forgiveness for what it is and know that through forgiveness, God is able to establish two of his highest and best institutions that we have known on earth, the church and the family. God uses forgiveness to create family, and then he establishes other people within it. So again, forgiveness is distinctly Christian, and forgiveness is part of what makes us Christian. We are meant to forgive those who sin against us, because God in Christ has forgiven us. God became human to pick up and carry the sins of humanity because it was too heavy for us to carry it. I want you to read verse 20 again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that verse so beautifully expresses, so simply explains why we are able to forgive and why we ought to forgive when we can. Because God can use even the evil people intend toward us for his good purposes. Like a skilled artist, he can repurpose and incorporate into his work even our mistakes and the wounds that we've received from others. I was thinking this week, I, I vacillated on whether or not I was going to put it in the sermon, but thinking of an illustration of this, uh, which I felt like would hit in this church more than in most churches, just the idea of when people make mistakes with tattoos <laughs> and how skilled artists can go back and forge it into something new and beautiful instead. Um, maybe I should have left it out. I don't know. <laughs> Meg, Meg and Jake seem thrilled by the analogy. <laughs> Um, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Up until this point, I've been talking about forgiveness in the abstract. But Joseph does not forgive his brothers in the abstract, and we are not able to forgive in the abstract. So let's be practical for a moment and talk about what forgiveness looks like when it's acted out. With something that is distinctly Christian, we probably shouldn't be surprised that forgiveness is ritualized. And since Christianity this had such a profound effect on our society, I'm assuming that you will recognize this ritual. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You may have heard me talk about it before. It's something I think about a lot, especially as we were raising children. Because children make mistakes constantly. <laughs> um, what do we do to seek forgiveness? We start as we must, as we must, with telling the truth. We say something like, hey, I'm sorry, I need to apologize for something. And then we say, whatever it is, the truth that needs to be told, uh, with me to let you in on a lot of my mistakes and brokenness, about 90% of my apologies sounds something like this. Annie, I'm sorry, I should not have said that thing to you that I said last night. Um, I was tired, and I should have waited to talk about it until the morning. You can't defend yourself when you apologize. You have to put all of your weapons down. An apology followed by, but you, it's not an apology. And it won't lead to forgiveness. And you know what happens next. The other person has to agree with you, with what you stated. In some way, they have to agree that you've told the truth. 
or else it becomes more complicated. My wife will usually pile on or, or you know, agree a little too much with my apology, or she'll simply admit her own fault. The last step in the ritual is repentance. You make a plan or a promise that somehow something will change. We won't live the rest of our lives this way, separated from each other, unable to speak about this thing without getting mad at each other, pulling up old hurt, and it has to be genuine. Empty promises are immediately found out and rejected, as only the people who know you best can do. And the last step in our ritual is reconciliation. The arms that were folded during the fight, during the conversation, slowly unfold and become outheld. I make a joke about it, she allows herself to laugh, or she'll say something that would sound like we'd gone back to the fight if I didn't know her tone and know that she was teasing. If two people in a relationship never argue, one of those people is either being consumed or is hiding themselves. If two people in a relationship can learn to forgive each other, can determine never to let separation stand, always to seek forgiveness, then you can have family. Now that's the ideal. Let's talk about the in-ideal. Sometimes you can talk for days, years, and not come to an agreement on what the truth of the matter really is. The larger, the deeper the hurt, the more difficult it's going to be to tell the truth of the thing. Especially if someone hiding is hiding something, because until they can come out with it, truth can never be told, and you'll always fall short of forgiveness. Or if what you're trying to talk about isn't the actual core of the matter. You're arguing about politics or respect or that thing your kid does that your spouse also does and you're mad about it because she taught it to him or he taught it to him. It's usually me. Um, if you're always distracting yourself instead of talking about what the core of the matter, you'll never reach forgiveness. Some hurts are so large that they're societal and they're decades old. And just telling the truth about them can take a very, very long time. Sometimes an injustice is so complex that while it takes a while even to explain, and if people aren't patient to listen, you never get to the truth. Sometimes you can't reach agreement. Sometimes you have to forgive someone by yourself without them having to agree, without them agreeing with you on what the truth is. And then usually in those circumstances, you have to love them then from a distance. Meaning you have to exclude them from the process of forgiveness because they're not able or willing, really, to take part. The abusive spouse, for example, or the abusive parent. The addicted friend who drags you down with her. If someone's only going to take that suffering that they are producing over and over again and place it on you over and over again, then you need to create boundaries in that relationship. The point is, you can still forgive them for hurting you, and you can reconcile with God and with yourself, even if you cannot bring them into that reconciliation. I would also advise you to avoid theoretical forgiveness. Like I said, you can't forgive someone in the abstract. You can only embrace the people who are in front of you. You can only hug people you've actually met, and what I mean by that is, it is so possible I've seen this over and over again. It's a, it's a symptom of my own generation, if I can call my, people my age out. It is possible to get so wrapped up in being forgiving as a Christian that you start forgiving everyone 
in the world except for the people who are actually in your life. Theoretically, you're an accepting and loving person, but actually when people get close to you, there's either a wall there so people can't get to know you, or when people actually do succeed in knowing you, the relationship is fraught. C.S. Lewis, Lewis in the Screwtape Letters talks about a man who speaks publicly about world peace and then goes home and beats his kids. Avoid, at all costs, theoretical forgiveness. Practice forgiveness and acceptance with the people closest to you in your life. And that Christian forgiveness, that Christian practice, will spill out into the rest of your relationships and into your communities. I want to close by reminding us again that any and all forgiveness in our lives flows from first being forgiven by Christ. We are ultimately not strong enough to bear the weight of other people's sins. If you've ever tried to save someone, you will know exactly what I mean. We are ultimately not strong enough to bear the weight of other people's sins, but Christ is strong enough. When we were moving into our house um, last year, AJ helped me move a lot of our furniture, and my joke to Annie afterwards, she said, did you have help moving? And I said, yes, I had more help than what was actually helpful. Probably took me twice as long to allow him to lift whatever he could, and I carried the rest. In forgiveness, our Father, God, is really the one carrying the sin that we take up in our lives and in our churches and our communities. He's the only one really strong enough to do it. And he's the one really carrying it, but trust me, he is thrilled when we take part. Joseph is a sign and a symbol and a forebear of Christ. Joseph was Lord over half of Egypt, and because of the love of his father, <clears throat> he took the suffering of his brothers <clears throat> that they produced in their sin. <clears throat> he took it and he carried it so they would not have to. Instead of just, justice and death, <clears throat> they received instead a seat at Joseph's own table. And they received, in return for their sin, family and forgiveness. So in Joseph we see Christ, Lord of Lords, who wept for us, who because of the love of his Father forgives us and calls us brothers. Christ bears the suffering we produce, so instead of death, we receive a seat at his own table, among his own family. Praise God. I would invite you this morning into forgiveness, into the forgiveness of Christ for every false way in you, and into the Christian practice of forgiving those who have sinned against you. <clears throat> there is more freedom, more beauty and forgiveness than in any kind of superiority, any kind of revenge or bitterness, Forgive, friends, because Christ first forgave you. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace, for your forgiveness. God, this is the foolishness of the gospel, that we who are so sinful might be forgiven without making our own atonement. God, without justice being served, it is not just, Lord, that I would be forgiven of my sins and be able to hold my head high in this place. God, it is not just that I would be able to cry out to you and that you would actually heed me and hear me. 
Lord, I praise you because you do not give me what I deserve. But instead, you give, you grant the request of a loving Father, God, to forgive me, to wrap me back up in the family and invite me to your table and provide for me so richly. God, what I could not afford. God, I pray that you would invite others into your forgiveness, into your family. Lord, that you would teach us like you to forgive God so that we can pray that you would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, and that when people look at our community, God, they would not just see a community of people who have been baptized, Lord, but you would see a community of people who forgive each other and forgive anyone else who walks through our doors, regardless of their sins. God, I pray all these things in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Before we go, please stand, if you will, and join me in singing the doxology. I'll be available after this if you want to talk or pray. But for now, join me in this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. 
Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord.